I'm Gordon Peake, and for about 15 years now, I've been getting on flights to and from Timor-Leste or the Pacific, working sometimes as a jobbing consultant on international aid programs, sometimes gathering materials for articles and books. And these flights leave early. They require me to get up about three or four in the morning and scurry to the airport in the pre-dawn hours, that time when we really shouldn't be awake. I'd often be in a bit of a ruminative mood, wondering what on earth I was doing, what, if any, good I was doing, what all the effort I was engaging in added up to. And all around me, on TV news screens dotted around the terminals or in the newspapers I'd read, in the news feeds on my phone, there'd be politicians and senior government officials talking about the Pacific and Timor-Leste. It felt like a constant hum New chapters, new announcements, new memorandums of understanding, relationships always being strengthened and taken to the next level. It didn't matter if it was 2007, 2008, 2023. The news always seemed the same. Beyond our bilateral relationship, which I'm sure we can work to improve, to take to new heights that we have not seen before. The United States knows that this region is strategically and economically vital and becoming more so. Today, security in the Pacific and for the Pacific Islanders remains as critical as ever to us, and I hope to you as well, to secure the security of America, quite frankly, and the world depends on your security and the security of the Pacific Islands, and I really mean that. Australia is a leader in the Pacific region, in our Pacific family. Our government has increased, first of all, the overseas development assistance to the Pacific by 50%. We have a responsibility as an advanced economy in the region to provide support uh, to our Pacific uh, island neighbours and that indeed that is in Australia's interest very much so. Over the last few years, these announcements have taken on a new urgency with the Pacific becoming a bit of a checkpoint Charlie of the modern age. I'd often look at my fellow passengers on these flights and wonder what they were doing once they'd be dispersed from the metal cylinder, flinging us to Dili, the ports of Moresby and Vila, Honiara, Majuro and Marshall Islands, a journey which from Australia requires crossing the international date line twice. They were a diverse bunch on these flights, The majority were expatriates, but a good smattering of Pacific Islanders too. We'd get to chatting when we were jammed together down at the back, heading to and from trainings and consultancies. My fellow passengers were engaged in countless pursuits. Police reform, defence reform, working as advisors in government departments, delivering courses, building roads, developing gender strategies, you name it. But all of us, in some ways small or large, were part of one pursuit, a great game in which a state seeks that most slippery of performance indicators, 
power and influence over another state. It's a game played out every day in government offices, police training centers, deep on the ocean floor, on our social media feeds, and in the corridors of Pacific capitals, as well as Canberra, where I once lived, and Washington, D.C., the place that I live now, and a place that has recently rediscovered the Pacific. A free and open Indo-Pacific is vital to each of our nation's security and prosperity, and to all our shared futures. In my pre-dawn ruminations, I often wondered what the rules of this game were, how we determined if any of it mattered, and whether we were going about it the right way. I wondered too about the legacies of many of the events and activities. Check any ambassador's social media feed and one will see this train of announcements about training programs and corporate plans being launched, new kit being given out. Just what happened when all the bunting was cleared away? When Professor Joanne Wallace from the University of Adelaide got in touch with an idea for a project examining this game, I was intrigued. Joanne is Professor of International Security and has a long-time interest in Australia's relationship with the Pacific Islands. She is the author or editor of seven books, among them one called Pacific Power, an account of Australia's century-old quest for influence in the Pacific, and a book that made Lord of the Rings dance in my mind when I read it. The quest is never successful entirely. And the book, to me, is an appeal for humility, to remember and learn from the past. Joanne had a name for all this game playing, and its name was Statecraft. I'll let her explain more. Statecraft basically describes the behaviour, the tools that a state has in its repertoire that it can try to use to influence or shape the behaviour of other states and actors. We came up with a bit of a laundry list, but I'm not sure it's a comprehensive list. I'm sure that you will discover through your journey in this podcast many other tools. There's the obvious things that gets a lot of attention in the commentary and media, which is economic aid, loans, infrastructure projects, military bases, military assistance, port visits, military exercises. Then there's the less clear, but potentially in many ways more useful because they're more subtle ways of influencing or seeking to influence another state. And this is the soft power idea, concepts of scholarships, um, media training and exchanges, exchanges and training between public servants and, and other kinds of capacity building in inverted commas that's offered. It's not overtly trying to change necessarily what the participants in any of these programs think, but it's shaping them, it's socialising them to a view of the world so that when they go back to work in their different capacities, they might see the world in a way that suits the state that was offering them that training. One of the things that I think is really interesting about how statecraft is presented is the discussion of it rarely centres on those people cramped together on planes trying to write reports or develop plans. Look at the covers of books about statecraft and one very rarely sees pictures of actual people. Instead, it is usually images of chess pieces or a sword and an olive branch or a statue of some old fellow from Greek or Roman times that makes me feel slightly insecure not knowing who that person is. I think the problem that we face a lot of the time when we're looking at 
foreign policy analysis and we're seeking to, to analyse issues like influence is the assumed rationality of both states and actors. And there's not enough appreciation that people are humans. They have emotions, they have their own biases, they have their own histories that have shaped that. But there has been a real tendency over the last 20 years to assume rationality based on a liberal democratic inverted commas model and to assume that the people implementing a state's foreign policy through state building, you know, the people who are building police forces, who are redesigning the the financial models of a government are all somehow interchangeable units. Joanne and I were on the same page and I was ready to receive my terms of reference. Okay, in terms of your quest, Gordon, well, as we have discussed, influence is no easy or straightforward matter, yet it is bandied about by every commentator and media reporter between Washington and, and Canberra. So what I want you to please do over the next two seasons of this podcast is to unpack what on earth influence means and how states go about seeking to achieve it. Okay, so no pressure there. No, not at all. You can knock that over surely in 16 episodes. There'll be some to spare. I'm sure the last episode will just be you having a pina colada on the beach, having solved all these problems. My my hair might be even greyer by the time we get to the end of this. We thought we'd begin our quest in Dili and in a restaurant that constitutes a bit of a parlour room for development consultants, defence officials, visiting ministers, police advisors. It's called the Agora Food Studio, and it's a stone throw from the Australian, American, Chinese, and Japanese embassies, as well as a number of international development consultancies and NGOs. Imagine an upscale coffee shop with a Rick's Cafe or Graham Greene novel type of vibe, and you've got the idea. But when our reporter Paula Torres asked the denizens of Agora about what they were doing, what statecraft meant to them, nobody could come up with a shared definition of the term. Their answers were as diverse as Agora's menu. What does the word statecraft mean to you? I don't know. I never heard the word statecraft. Statecraft? I think this is a disease. It sounds like a computer game. Um, To be honest, it's not a word that I'm super familiar with. I can understand what it means, I guess, but from where I'm from, we don't use this word regularly. But I'd say statecraft is sort of, um, I guess, people um, living um, like in accordance with, I guess, um, the direction that the government's sort of trying to push them in. Statecraft, for me, uh, it means like a national traditional craft work that uh, like a, the generation of women uh, making some of uh, the uh, textile or some a uh, weaving work. Uh, that's my image of statecraft. And so we began our quest anew in the city from which I used to take a lot of those flights from, Canberra. We talked with Bridie Rice, a former public servant, management consultant, and writer of that most rare of products, the page-turning PhD thesis which she wrote about relationships between government officials and government advisors in Papua New Guinea. Bridie is now CEO of the Development Intelligence Lab, a sort of safe place for bureaucrats, researchers, and think tankers to meet and test out ideas. 
I asked her what her favorite statecraft story was, and she baited me with... I can only think of like silly little anecdotes, like headbutting an ambassador or something. Before she checked herself and said no more. Bridie's position means that she has a crow's nest vantage point to observe this great game. It's, it's pretty bloody interesting to observe. And, and the pragmatist in me sees that countries like Australia and like-minded, like the UK, New Zealand, US, we're all suddenly somehow united in our security interests by this big thing imagined or real called the People's Republic of China. And yet at the same time, we're having this, this crisis of a wake-up call as we all kind of race into the region to ostensibly rebalance the geopolitical power play um, and realise that like, there's no way we're going to achieve any of our security interests unless it is done on Pacific terms. Um, and that's a really, really common sense realisation if you come from the development community. We've known for bloody decades that nothing works unless you've got local leadership. Um, but it's a massive wake-up call for Washington and Canberra and other capitals to realise that your security interests in a region like this are going to actually come down to um, listening and understanding the interests of, of local leaders. For Bridie, statecraft is a term that can't be reduced to prim, officious, diplomatic language. So if you take that sort of really big strategic picture and you paint it down into a day-to-day moment, at least in my experience working in, in Papua New Guinea, and, and I was super lucky to interview a whole heap of people for my thesis around how it is that they do and don't like working with international actors. What I, what I found was this, this big shock, right? I went into this project looking at how it is that capacity building happens. And what I anticipated to find was a really nuanced picture of great design, great performance monitoring processes from aid practitioners. And, and instead, after interviewing a good 30 people who'd worked with a good 30 Australian advisors, what it all boiled down to was a local counterpart in Papua New Guinea working in Port Moresby with an international donor like Australia wanted one thing. They wanted to be respected. They wanted to be listened to. They could not have given a flying care in the world about the geostrategic interests of Australia. In fact, they wanted us to be a hell of a lot more honest about it. They just wanted to be respected. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to be listened to. And yes, they wanted those Australians for their technical expertise. Who wouldn't? I would love somebody to come into my organisation and help me out with a few things that I need to improve on. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But if somebody came into my organisation, told me what to do, told me how to do it, told me when to do it, and on their terms, I'd probably give them a flying bird. Well, my name is Fidelis Magalhães. I was born and raised in East Timor, in Timor-Leste. And I'm so proud of the fact that I come from Maliana, Bobonaro, and I work for the government. Uh, currently, I'm a government minister, overlooking overall government coordination and uh, also uh, running uh, the, the Council of Ministers. So I help or I assist the prime minister in overall government coordination. But I also serve as the government's, uh, in that capacity, I am also the government's official spokesperson. For all the technical language it tends to be swaddled in, statecraft is a fundamentally human endeavor, influence achieved through personal politics and personal relationships. This was a persistent theme in the conversation I had with Fidelis, who's a man who has packed a lot into his relatively young life. 
As a teenager, he was a member of the clandestine resistance to Indonesian rule. And now, in his early 40s, he's a senior politician and fixture in the Timorese government. He carries the air of a young philosopher in a government where the majority of the elite are a generation or two older than him. I've always enjoyed Fidelis's company and increasingly marvel at how all the attention he must be getting every single day hasn't gone to his head. We got to talking about one of the stock features of statecraft, the launch ceremony, and whether all the effort put into them was really worth it. Often the most important performance indicator I find in, in these circumstances is which government minister shows up to the event, um, who is there in order to show that in a Timor-Leste example, that the Timor-Leste government is on board with this commitment or not. And I imagine for you as the government spokesman, it must get really tiring, actually. I mean, you must you must feel extremely popular a lot of the time because you're getting invited to here, there and everywhere. I mean, how do you, how does the government of Timor-Leste <laughs> navigate all this? Well, I think there is all this element of uh, recognition and uh, recognition in uh, much more in a philosophical sense, meaning whether one can exist without the recognition from others. So development projects or initiatives and their launchings, I think, uh, refer to that. So participants are important. Those who are present are important. But having them present and the audience can tell you about the type of acceptance or recognition uh, that is given by other states or other organizations to your own state. So with that, I think the composition of participants are, are, are very important. And uh, I think people like from the giving uh, donors or partners to the receiving end, when you have these ritual ceremonies of launching, of inauguration, that's, I think, that complements or contributes to the ritualistic part and demonstration of mutual recognition. Uh, so I think that's, uh, there is a element of that. And I think we are just human and diplomats are human, government officials are human, and we do like to celebrate uh, work that has been accomplished. So that sense of accomplishment, I think, is mutually beneficial. In their own ways, both Bridie and Fidelis were saying the quiet part out loud. Statecraft is every bit as much about human relationships and the ability to get along as it is about anything else. When Timor-Leste ministers return from a meeting, the prime topic is not discourse analysis of paragraphs within communiques or agreements, but personal impressions of the person that they met, a sort of likability test. People don't normally jump into reflect about the substance before they give you a broad impression of the reception they received, the warmth expressed by the host or by their counterpart. I think these things normally um, appear to be quite a dominant component of post-meeting reflection. And social skills are very important and receptivity to human micro-expressions, I think, are important. Now, I am not making a judgment call whether these things are uh, the most reliable or not. I'm just simply pointing out their relevance in international politics because I've also realized even the leaders of most powerful countries are still reflecting on the role on, on other leaders based on what they get out of or the impressions that they have uh, that they developed during their encounters with the other leaders. This suggests that we might be focusing on the wrong thing entirely. 
spending too much time on bureaucratic mechanics and not enough on relational dynamics when it comes to influence. Back to Bridie again, I still couldn't get her to cough up that story about the headbutting ambassador, but she's got a cracking story about all the efforts plowed into another tool of statecraft, signing a memorandum of understanding. So probably one of the biggest mysteries in statecraft that I've come across is actually the subject of your previous podcast, Gordon, the Golden MOU. And I've been involved in a few, and I remember the first one that I was involved in was a cooperation agreement between Australia and Papua New Guinea. And I mean, we laboured over this thing for literally months and months and months, every word, every detail um, that was passed through and down to the, the fact that we needed four different types of envelopes for the important people to sign. Um, it was a it was a major undertaking, and um, finally got the thing signed. It probably took about twelve months, and then I landed in in Papua New Guinea in the Department of Justice, where the MOU was in operation, and never proceeded to look at it or see it again for the next three years of my life. Um, so now that I, you know, have got a few more grey hairs under my belt, and I'm looking at the sorts of MOUs and cooperation agreements emerging between Australia and the US, I, um, I've retained a fair amount of scepticism um, over the MOU as a tool of statecraft. I was so totally intrigued by Bridie's story about this MOU, I spent hours searching for it online. Couldn't find it. MOUs and their actual worth also was a flavour in the conversation I had with Emeritus Professor Hugh White, who's intelligent, historically informed, puckish writings about statecraft I've always enjoyed. He wasn't a big believer that these MOUs buy a lot of influence either. He too was a big believer that in statecraft, people are policy, individuals are influence. I find it very hard to imagine that a target country is going to willingly make a decision which serves their national interest less well in order to do Australia a favour because Australia helped them build a bridge or something, that that's fanciful but that I'll pay careful attention to what you say to me because I know you and I've respected you and I've enjoyed your company. Oh, that happens. You can see it happening. And that goes both to relations between diplomats on the ground and foreign leaders, and it goes to relationships between foreign leaders and foreign leaders. And I think it's a, it's a kind of thing which is apt to be understated because people, for example, don't take diplomacy very seriously as a profession. And, you know, you can't work at the ministerial level, as I spent a lot of my career doing, without seeing that happen day after day. You know, that's the way it works. So, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a very big believer of that. So I guess then the next question here would be, if human relationships are so central, why are they such a kind of forbidden fruit topic? Why, why do we shy away from kind of thinking about them or acknowledging them within a government or sort of bureaucratic concept? I think right at the heart of that is because they're expensive. They're expensive in time and expensive in energy. And they're unpredictable. And they're unpredictable, ex exactly. The, the, the investment can be made and still not deliver. Uh, because, you know, for an Australian minister to really spend time building a, a good working relationship they're the kind of relationship that generates real influence with the foreign minister of Papua New Guinea or the foreign minister of Solomon Islands. We've got to spend time with them. And time is very precious. And it might not work because they might be voted out 
next week or they might be a complete shit anyway and you know well they might just not like you and so it puts real pressure on the quality of your foreign service and a high quality foreign service is actually in a grand sweep of history speaking of someone who spent most of their career in around the defense portfolio is cheap as chips as people keep on observing but successive governments have failed to recognize this and i might say successive foreign leaders of the foreign affairs department have failed to argue for it effectively and i I think there's plenty of blame to go around for the fact that, that we don't we don't do that very well. And of course, it's not just Australia. I think I mean you only have to look at the United States and the collapse of the quality of American statecraft, including the personnel that it has, to see that we're not the only people in trouble here. But if you're actually trying to maximise your influence, you'd be much better off spending less money on bridges or on, or governance programs, and more money on better quality and more. Diplomats. I mean, one of the things that makes a difference is how much time has the diplomat got to spend getting to know people. And that partly depends on how many people there are in the political section. And if the political section is two people and half of somebody else, and they spend most of their time going out to the airport, then we're the best will in the world. You're just not going to spend the time to get to know people, to build those relationships and connections. Third real forbidden fruit, truth hiding in plain sight. Pick your favorite expression. For as we set out on Joanne's quest, I was minded to think that all those people getting on planes, their foibles, their strengths, their weaknesses, their abilities, their stop-start endeavors, are the major actors in statecraft. Join us next week as we focus on the seemingly endless efforts to reform the police services of the Pacific and Timor-Leste. I'm your host, Gordon Peake. Mark Peter Nataras and Shana Ryan at Cultural Pulse produce the podcast. Joanne Wallace at University of Adelaide is the executive producer. Luther Knut is the sound engineer. This activity was supported by the Australian government through a grant by the Australian Department of Defence to the University of Adelaide. The views expressed are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Australian government the Australian Department of Defence or the University of Adelaide.